Hey leaders, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a free event that I'm hosting, your personal leadership audit live workshop. I've put the workshop together because if you want to stand out as an exceptional leader, you have to know yourself inside and out. Understanding your strengths and weaknesses is critical. And for that, you need a high degree of self-awareness and a commitment to self-reflection. Now, if you're committed to unlocking your leadership potential, then working through a self-assessment like this is going to help you to quickly identify a path to higher impact. I'll be leading you through a deep dive into the seven imperatives of my No Bullshit Leadership Framework, so that by the end of the session, you'll know exactly what areas you need to develop if you really want to stand out from the crowd. We're only opening up 150 spots, so register now at yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. That's yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 165 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, The Future of Leadership with Jacob Morgan. Now, as you know, We don't do many interviews on the No Bullshit Leadership podcast. Most of it is Marty Monologue. But occasionally we get to talk to a leader and an expert who has a different view of the world who can bring some real value to you as the listener. And this week, Jacob Morgan is that person. Now, Jacob has a podcast called The Future of Work, on which I've appeared as a guest, and he's authored the book called The Future Leader. 
And this book is super interesting because he's interviewed 140 chief executives of major organisations. But not only that, he's also interviewed 14,000 people who work for these leaders to find out whether the reality matches the hype. The conversation we have is focused on working out what is it that really makes organisations work. Now, I actually learned a lot from this because you know my view, leadership is leadership. If you were a great leader in 2019, you're going to be a great leader in 2022 and 2030 and 2035. But Jacob actually uncovered some really interesting points that came from these top CEOs that expose some of the issues we're going to face in the future. It's not going to be the same as it was in the past, we know that, but what is it that we're going to have to pay attention to as future leaders? It's a long interview, so I'm not going to say anything else. Let's get into it. Jacob Morgan, welcome to No Bullshit Leadership. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Now, Jacob, I've got to tell you, over the last 48 hours, I've read your book, The Future Leader, and I absolutely love it because what you've managed to do is get together some of the top CEOs on the planet and extract from them what they think about leadership of the future, which I found absolutely fascinating. Big names from big businesses, lots of different countries, and of course, a few smaller ones. Tell me a little bit about the project and how it started and how you got access to all these incredible people. Yeah, that's a very common question that people ask. And, and first, I got to say, 48 hours to read almost 300 pages. That's got to be a record for the book. So uh, <laughs> I, I hope you had some wine nearby. Or I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you Absolutely. did 48 hours. So it came about because I would speak at a lot of conferences and events, just, just like you do. And I would keep getting questions from attendees and from business leaders asking me about the future. And, I, you know, everybody has an opinion about the future, but I didn't really have any, like, hard data on this stuff. And I started doing some Googling and some research, looking at how is leadership changing? What's the future of leadership? And I found some stuff on surveys, you know, maybe one or two books that were here or a couple quotes from some leaders, but there was nothing that was really substantial. And I thought, well, this is a very interesting opportunity for me to actually create something. And that's why I brought together uh, the, the insights, the perspectives from 140 of the world's top CEOs from organizations like Oracle, Unilever, Best Buy, uh, Kaiser, Verizon, Audi, you know, big global brands. And I also wanted to combine that with the perspectives and insights of employees who actually work with and for these leaders. So I then surveyed 14,000 employees around the world, uh, which was done in partnership with LinkedIn, and put together what I think is a pretty comprehensive look at how leadership is changing and what it's going to take to succeed as a leader in the future. And as far as getting access to these CEOs, it was not easy. Uh, some of the CEOs I knew because I've worked with them, I've spoken at their events, they've been guests on the podcast. Uh, a lot of CEOs we actually reached out to um, and asked if they would be interested in participating. And you know how it is with a lot of CEOs. You say, hey, I have the CEO of Best Buy or I have the CEO of MasterCard and they, you know, or the CEO of Unilever. Mm, sure. And they, they see those names, they hear those names and they're like, oh, okay, well, you, you must be legit. You must not be like, you know, working on some little, you know, to use one of your phrases, some bullshit book, uh, and, uh, and, and they're happy to join. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, and what a collection you have and such variety in their comments, which I absolutely loved. And when we talk about the future leader, there's obviously a difference now in terms of how you perceive a future leader. And um, Tim Ryan, I think the global chair of uh, PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, actually said in the book that you quoted him as saying, what made a great leader 25 or 50 years ago won't make a great leader 10 years from now. Yeah. Now, you've spoken about in the book the things that are the same and the things that are different. 
And I'd be really interested in you just letting our listeners know some of the things that you think are going to be radically different as we step into the next 10 years. Well, uh, this is also what I was fascinated in, right? I mean, I didn't know, is leadership really going to be that different? Uh, you know, maybe leadership is going to be much of the same as it is today or as it was five, 10 years ago. Uh, if so, then I really don't have a book. <laughs> so what I did was I, I right? I mean, because if it's, if it's going to be the same, you know, tons of stuff has already been written. So when I interviewed these CEOs, that was the first question I asked them, is leadership even changing? And they all said, yes. And I said, well, why is it changing? How come it's not just the same? And they came up and they gave me a bunch of different responses and rationale, um, mainly pointing to things like, well, because the world is changing, uh, whether you look at globalization or technology or the pace of change or the need for more transparency or the craving that employees have for more purpose and meaning, like business, work, uh, the world, organizations are changing. And if those things are changing, then it only stands that we need a different type of leader to lead and guide these organizations going forward. Now, the skills and mindsets that I talk about in the book, it's not like there are things that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, things like emotional intelligence, we've all heard of. Things like curiosity, we've all heard of. So it's not so much that these are crazy new skills and mindsets that come out of nowhere, but it's specifically that you didn't have to have these mindsets and skills in the past. In the past, if you were great at navigating office politics and bureaucracy, if you brought in a lot of money to the company, if you stayed at the company for 20 years, chances are you would be a leader, probably even a top executive at the organization. And you didn't need to have emotional intelligence. You didn't need to be a curious person. You didn't need to help make other people more successful than you. Uh, and I witnessed this first, firsthand. I uh, interned way back in the day at a financial uh, services firm. And... Uh, the person who brought me in, he was a top executive of the company, vice president. And he brought me into the organization. I interned there for a while. And then one day I show up to, to the office and he's packing up his stuff. And I'm like, what's going on? Uh, and he said, oh, I, you know, they're letting me go because I wasn't able to close as many deals. And I realized at that point that this person was only a vice president because he brought a lot of money to the company. Not because he was a good leader not because he could unlock the potential of other people, simply because he brought the organization a lot of money. And that is, I think, the biggest change we're starting to see. In other words, to be a leader now and in the future, you have to practice these skills and mindsets. You can't get by just by knowing somebody at the top or staying at the company for 20 years. And I think that is a very um, interesting and crucial shift that we're starting to see. Yes, and that's uh, almost exactly the way I describe it, uh, what you said at the end there, Jacob, about not being able to get away with poor leadership anymore. I think that's the way I describe it. Yep. You, you might have been able to get away with it in the past, but in the future, absolutely not. And some of the trends that you talk about are um, obvious, but, but so relevant and so unknown at the moment. So when wow. you talk about uh, artificial intelligence and technology, yep. and I think there was a statistic in the book about... Um, was it 80% of the jobs that are available in 2030 haven't yet been invented? Was it something like that? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I think it was 80% if not more, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's sort of, when you think about a future like that, that's super, super scary. Yeah. And in the past, when we've actually automated things and technology has taken over certain functions that happen in workplaces, people have largely been redeployed. Now, this is on average, and a lot of things get lost in the averages, as you know. There have been some black spots created on the planet. So, for example, when certain manufacturing facilities close down, a town dies, and that town falls into systemic unemployment. Yep. What do you think is going to happen with the amount of churn now and the amount of change 
combined with the other things you talk about, like the shrinking workforce with uh, people aging and birth rates being down in developed countries, where's this all ending up? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough question to, to try to answer. Um, but it's interesting. I think there are a few different things going on. So over the past, I think two years, a lot of the conversations around AI and automation, I think have very much dived down and been replaced by, uh, by COVID. Um, and I think there was also an interesting article that came out a few weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, that basically said, um, you know, whatever happened to IBM's Watson that was supposed to automate all these jobs around the world. Yeah. And the article basically said, you know, IBM Watson is not as good as we thought it was. And it's really only good at like one particular area. Because remember, IBM Watson beat Ken Jennings at Jeopardy. I, I forget how many years ago. I think Watson is already five, 10 years old. A lot of years. Yeah, and they were predicting that it's going to replace everyone. It's going to replace everything. Technology is like, you know, way ahead of where it should be. And you don't hear about IBM Watson at all anymore. It, it pretty much vanished. So it's, it's really hard to say. Um, I mean, I do think technological progress is obviously going to continue, but I don't think that I think, I don't think we're going to live in some world where it's dystopia. Um, I think that to create a dystopian world, we would, we would have to try to do that. And you would try to do that uh, by a number of different ways. Number one is if the world's top business leaders came together and they said, you know what, people suck and we just want to have bots and technology everywhere. Let's fire everybody. Um, another way that we would create dystopia is if there were no rules and regulations and processes for how technologies were being implemented. Uh, a third way we would create a dystopian world is if we as individuals realize that we're going to stop learning. We're going to stop educating. We're going to stop training and, and teaching ourselves new things. And we don't see these things happening. Um, we see that there are a lot of uh, business leaders out there who are saying people need to come first. Technology shouldn't be used to replace people, but to augment them, to bring people closer together. We see people who are focusing on training and redevelopment. Organizations like Accenture who are putting in a billion dollars, I think, every year for learning and training and development programs. So we don't see signs that we are moving towards that dystopian world, but we do see signs that we're moving towards a world where we need to have more accountability as individuals. Meaning that there used to be a time when you graduated college and everything that you needed to know to be professionally or personally successful, you had with you. Um, you, you whatever you learned, you could take with you for many years and you can't do that anymore. So if you wanna succeed in this rapidly changing world that we're all a part of, don't rely on anybody or on anything else. Um, teach yourself the skills that you need to know to be successful. I think if you as an individual are willing to do that, then you will absolutely have a place in whatever the future of, of work is going to look like. And the good news is that we've never had more tools and resources available to do so. I mean, you can go on YouTube now and learn anything that you want. You could get uh, courses from MIT, from Harvard for free. You can see the syllabuses, the resources. I mean, so much information and access out there, but we as individuals need to be able to make sure that we can go out there and get that information. And again, if you're willing to do that, I think you will be fine in whatever the future uh, holds. Mm. Oh, well, this is a really interesting topic for me because the availability of information instantaneously and free is such a game changer. Yep. The question is, what's the difference between knowledge and the ability to acquire knowledge and the insight to apply it? Yeah. No, there's a big, uh, there's a big difference there. And I mean, I can share, I mean, you, you mentioned, um, I think when you were a guest on my podcast, I play a lot of chess 
And there's a difference between, for example, and I, I studied chess for years. My grandmother taught me how to play chess when I was a little kid. And I would play chess online and I would do chess puzzles, but I never actually play, uh, played in a tournament. And I remember the first time I played in a tournament, which was actually just a few years ago, I was so nervous when I was playing this chess tournament. Like, I, I couldn't remember how the pieces move. Like, I forgot. <laughs> no. I, I couldn't remember the coordinates. Yeah, when you play chess, right, you have to write down the moves that you make. Yeah. And there's no coordinates written down on a board. So you have to say, for example, like E4, E5, yeah. like you write down the coordinates. And just blanked. Like, I felt like I had no idea how to play and so, again, I spent years doing chess puzzles and looking at stuff. But when I finally sat down on the board, I was like, holy shit, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And that, to me, is the same thing when we think about leadership or when we think about anything else for that matter. You could study and watch and view and talk about this stuff as much as you want. But at some point, you have to sit down at the chessboard and you have to make the moves. And if you don't do that then none of the other stuff matters. Mm. And now I always tell people like, uh, and now I, I play in regular chess tournaments all the time. And it's the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done. <laughs> you know, speaking in front of an audience of 10,000 people doing a podcast, like I am okay with all of that. But when I sit down at a chess board, I still get so nervous. Like my heart is beating out of my chest. Like I, like it is it's hard. And you sit like that for four, five, six hours. It is the most uncomfortable thing that I've ever done. Why? But I do it. Why? Jacob, what drives yeah. that? What drives that? Um, because it, it's a personal goal for me, right? I mean, I want to become a national master. I want to become a good chess player. And I know that to, to become a good chess player, I'm only going to be able to do that if I sit at the board. And it's a way that I push myself out of my comfort zone more than anything else. Some people go skydiving. Some people eat weird foods. Some people do, you know, all sorts of things. For me, it is very uncomfortable to sit at a chessboard and to play. And it's very confrontational, right? I mean, it's you and somebody else. Um, it's, it's an uncomfortable and it's an awkward feeling. It's silence. You have to be alone with your thoughts. You have to try to understand what the other person is doing. Uh, you have to make sure you avoid mistakes. Like, there's just so much going on that it is a very, very uncomfortable. But I love it um, because... Uh, when I'm done with the game and I analyze it, you know, if I win, I get this great feeling. If I lose, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I should never play chess again. <laughs> um, but it's, it, you, I learn an enormous amount, especially from the games that I lose. Right. And this is true for leadership for anything else, right? You will make a mistake, but when you do make that mistake, it stays in your head. And so when you're playing a certain opening or a certain position, you're going to remember, okay, well, last time I did this, I lost. Mm. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so I think there's a lot of personal and professional learning that I, I get out of chess. So I know long rant about chess. No, but, that's, um, that's good. You're clearly passionate about it. Yeah, yeah, clearly passionate yeah, about oh, it. I take great. lessons with a grandmaster. I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty crazy with that stuff. The, the concept of learning more from your losses is, um, I, I find, very natural. Uh, and I say when it comes to leadership, I learned a hell of a lot more about leading from the bad leaders I worked for than the good ones. Yeah, because I learned what not to do, and it was so indelibly etched in my psyche that that was a mistake I would never make. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's you, you do learn a lot from those things for sure. Let's move on to one of the other trends that you talk about in the book, which is purpose and meaning. And there's been a big upswell in recognition for purpose and meaning in the last few years. Yeah. But I really love the way you've got this tied up in the little model of job, purpose, 
impact meaning, which I really like. So could you just give our listeners just a few words on that just to explain how that hangs together? Because I really like it. Yeah, I mean, purpose and meaning oftentimes get used interchangeably. And sometimes I talk to a leader and they'll say purpose. Sometimes they'll say meaning. And I'm like, wait a minute. Well, which one are you talking about? Purpose and meaning, because those are two different things. And so the framework that I have in the book is this idea of job, purpose, impact, and meaning. Job is basically what it says on your job description. It's what you get hired to do. You know, you're going to be making phone calls if you're in customer service. Um, if you're an engineer, you're going to be writing code. If you're in sales, you're going to be closing deals. Like it, every job is very simple. We understand it. Um, the purpose is why you're actually doing that job. So why are you answering phones when customers call? Well, you know, you want to um, uh, solve their problems. You want to improve their day. You want them to come back to the company to buy more. Why are you writing code? Well, your purpose is you want to create that better user experience. You want to make it easy for customers to transact and interact with the brand. If you're in sales, what's your purpose? Why are you doing it? You want to make more money for the organization so that the company can grow, right? Your purpose. Next is your impact. Impact is what is the impact that you're actually having? So for example, uh, if I am a customer service representative and my purpose is to solve the problems of the customers who call. Is that the impact that I'm actually having? Or is my impact less than that? Maybe customers are calling me and I'm not able to solve their problems and they're leaving more frustrated and more angry than when they called in. Or maybe the flip side of that, maybe my impact is much greater than my purpose. They're calling in, I'm solving their problems and they're so delighted and happy that they tell their friends, their family members about the company, like they become brand evangelists. So at the very least, you always wanna make sure that the impact that you have in your organization is greater than or equal to your purpose. Impact should be greater than or equal to your purpose. Then we have the meaning. Meaning is a subjective thing. It is what you personally get out of the things that you are doing. Again, if I am a customer service representative, what do I personally, what's the meaning that I get? Well, I like building relationships with people. I like getting to know people. I like talking to people on the phone. I like knowing that I'm helping others. Like that's, that's the meaning that I get. Um, why am I an engineer? Well, the meaning that I get is I really like working on complex problems that other people can't solve. I get a lot of meaning from that. And so purpose and meaning are different things. And it's very, very important for us to understand this, um, this framework of job, purpose, impact, and meaning, uh, because they are not the same, but we need all of them. Mm. Yeah. Which I love. I love that. Let's talk about the concept of leaders paying lip service, because I think this happens all the time. And this was a strong theme in parts of your book, getting below those CEOs that you're talking to. Now, we know that certain leaders, I mean, everyone's learned to talk a good game, right? They can all say the words. They all know how to do it. We're all professional. We're all smart. Yep. How do you actually find out who the real McCoy is? How do, you, how do you know who's actually not just paying lip service, but is actually doing the right thing? Because the CEOs that I was reading these quotes from in your book, they are 100% convinced in their own minds, that this is the way their organizations work. Although I suspect when you're running organizations as big as they are, there'd be pockets of those organizations that they would be embarrassed about, just as I was in CS Energy. It would be woeful in certain parts of the organization if they could see what was going on. And there's this disconnect sometimes between what we think is going on and what's actually going on, because everyone talks a good game. Did you find that this is a problem anywhere in between the 14,000 employees you surveyed and the 140 CEOs? Did you find where this thing breaks down. Oh yeah. Um, so 
There were four mindsets and five skills that I talk about in the book. Um, and when I asked leaders across uh, the world, you know, whether they're senior level executives or mid-level leaders, I said, how well do you think you're practicing these mindsets and skills? A lot of them said, you know, we're doing pretty good. You know, maybe we're not amazing, but we're doing pretty good. Like we got it. And then I asked the 14,000 employees around the world who work for these leaders, how well do you think your leaders are practicing these mindsets and skills? And those employees were like, what are you kidding me? My leader has no idea what they're doing. How did they even get this job? In fact, the number of employees who said their leaders were practicing these mindsets and skills very well was less than 10%. Right. But the number of leaders who said they were practicing these mindsets and skills very well was much higher than that, right? 30, 40, 50%. Um, and I think in total, 70 plus percent of leaders say that they're practicing these mindsets and skills either reasonably well or very well compared to around 20 or 30% of employees who said the same thing. So we're talking about like 30, 40% gaps across the board, which is massive. And to get back to your first question, which is how do you find out which leaders are, you know, the real McCoy, so to speak, you don't talk to the leaders. You talk to the people who work for the leaders. Because like you said, leaders can pay lip service all the time. And so you can talk to a leader, and I've talked to many of them, even on this podcast, and you, you know, they'll, they'll tell you the things that they believe in. They'll tell you how important these things are to them. Meanwhile, you talk to employees who work there, or you look at their reviews on Glassdoor, and they're atrocious. They're terrible. And so what that tells me oftentimes is that don't talk to who it doesn't matter. Um, what you as a leader think about yourself and what you as a leader believe about yourself doesn't mean anything. Um, in the world of leadership, perception is reality. And the only thing that matters is the perceptions and the ideas uh, of the people who work with and for you, not the ones that you have of yourself. So if you want to find out which leaders out there are future ready leaders, which leaders are making an impact, you don't talk to those leaders. You talk to the people who work with and for those leaders and see what they say. I think that'll give you the best, um, uh, the best insight. Yeah, for sure. For sure. One of the mindsets you talk about is the servant mindset for a leader. The concept of servant leadership, which came from, um, I think, Robert Greenleaf about 50 years ago. Yeah. Great concept. And it was obviously uh, as backlash to the command and control model that he worked with in his organization over a number of years. But when I think about servant leadership, it always reminds me of that quote from Rosalind Carter, who said, a leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader doesn't take people where they want to go, but where they ought to be. Hmm. So does the servant leader take someone to where they want to be? And how do you get someone to have the mindset of service and being a servant still to get people to where they ought to be? Mm. Well, um, so I guess let's break it up into, into a few questions. So the mindset of the servant is similar to servant leadership, but different. So the mindset of the servant is really about uh, a couple of different things. Um, one is about having humility and vulnerability. Um, and then the, the three other core uh, pieces of the mindset of the servant are, are understanding that you as a leader, you serve different groups. You serve your leaders if you have them, you serve your customers, you serve your team, but you also as a leader serve yourself. So you're serving four different groups and on top of that you have the humility and the vulnerability piece. So that similar to servant leadership, but also different. Um, and so serving your customers, I think everybody knows. Serving your team, I think a lot of people understand, right? Uh, recognition um, as a leader you are not the one that sits at the top of the pyramid. You're at the bottom of the period kind of a pyramid pushing everybody else up. Um, a lot of people oftentimes get stuck. And by the way, serving your leaders means you have a good relationship with them. 
right? If you know your leader's going into a meeting and they need a piece of information, give it to them. If you know your leader is having a tough time, offer to help them. Like having that good rapport, that good relationship with your leaders is also very, very important. But the one that people oftentimes forget is you have to serve yourself. And self-care is not the same thing as selfish care. I'm not talking about doing whatever you need to do so that you can get ahead. Backstabbing people, playing office politics and bureaucracy. I think we talked about like the tall poppy syndrome on my podcast. It's not about Mm -hmm. that. Self-care is about doing whatever you need to do to make sure that you take care of yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Eat healthy, exercise, get enough sleep, meditate. I don't care. Do whatever you need to do. But if as a leader, you're constantly showing up to work burned out, stressed out, unhappy, tired, how can you possibly be in a position where you can effectively lead those around you? So self-care and um, selfish care are very different things. Uh, So that's kind of the context around the mindset um, of the servant. And I think your original question was, um, do you take people to where they want to be, right? To where they want to go or to where they ought to be, I think is the distinction. It's tough. Um, I oftentimes think of that... um, uh, the Batman quote, right? You know, don't, don't be the hero people need or be the hero people want or something like that uh, for, you know, for Gotham City. I think there's a combination of both. You know, as, as a leader, I think you need to know how you can unlock the potential of your people. Like you, you it's just like the, the coach of a team. You know what your people can do, even though the people might not know themselves what they can do. Uh, If you've ever interviewed or if you've ever seen an interview with a great athlete or a sports team after they win, they always say, we couldn't have done it without our coach. And that's because a coach helps you do things that you didn't know that you could do. So if you ask an individual, where do you think that you can go? Where do you think that you can can be? Oftentimes, I find that we are going to sell ourselves short of what our true potential is. And sometimes it takes that external party, that third party to look at us and say, wow, you have a lot of potential you can be great even though you might not necessarily see it yourself and I can help you unlock that potential. I can help you be something that you didn't even know that you could be. So there's a delicate balance between the two and I think really what makes a great leader is you have that conversation, you have that dialogue and push people to help unlock their potential but do it in a way where you're not burning the person out, where you are not crushing them, where you are not setting goals that they feel like they can never achieve. So there's a delicate balance between letting people uh, get to where they um, feel like they can be versus you as a leader getting to people to a a stage where you know that they can go. Uh, So it's, again, it's a really tough balance between those two. It is a tricky one. And um, it reminds me of one of your mindsets, uh, the chef mindset, which I love. How did you come up with these names? They're fantastic. The chef. And I love the uh, technology teenager too. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I was really trying to just come up with something that I think people would remember. Um, And if I were to just say curiosity or if I were to just say emotional intelligence, people would forget about it. But if I say, well, it's the skill set of Yoda or the mindset of the chef. Yeah. I think think there's more of a story behind it that people can remember. Um, And the mindset of the chef is really just about balancing two things. And before I even talk about what those two things are, I came up with this because if anybody's ever tried cooking, we know that there are a lot of different ingredients that go into a dish, a lot of different things that we're constantly trying to balance, Uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 ingredients sometimes. And if you put too much of one ingredient, the dish becomes unhealthy. Too much of another ingredient, too salty, too sweet. So there's always this balance that we need to play around with. And as leaders, there are just two ingredients that you need to balance to make sure that the dish comes out great. 
One is humanity and one is technology. You need to make sure that you are constantly thinking of both of those things. And you need both. If you focus too much on technology, for example, you will have an organization that is productive and efficient and is making decisions quickly. But you're also going to have an organization where you're not able to attract and retain the best talent. You're going to have an organization where people don't want to be there. You're not going to have loyalty. Customers won't want to interact and transact with you. And employees won't want to be there. Similarly, if you only focus on the humanity aspect, you'll attract and retain the best people. You'll have a lot of loyal customers uh, and loyal employees who want to be there. But you won't be able to innovate uh, quickly enough. You won't be able to um, uh, scale. You won't be able to be as productive and as efficient as you need to be. So you need to have that delicate balance of both. And the way that you do that, and if you've ever gone to a you know, fancy restaurant and you see the chef that's in there you know, cooking and there's all these other sous chefs around them, what do they always do? They're always tasting the dish constantly. They always have a spoon. They're always tasting it. And then they're giving instructions. It needs more of this. It needs more of that. So what that means is as a leader, you need to get out of your ivory tower. You can't be in your office while everybody else is in the kitchen trying to tell them how to make a great dish. If you want to make a great dish, you as the chef need to be in the kitchen with an apron, with everybody else, uh, tasting the food and talking to your people and asking them how they're feeling, where are their pain points, where are their frustrations, um, and really getting involved. And that is, I think, a very, very crucial thing for leaders to do. And honestly, it's oftentimes something we're not that comfortable doing because we don't feel like we need to. We feel like we've earned the right, um, you know, especially the traditional classical leaders. We've earned the right to not have to do that. We get to go in the ivory tower and let everybody else do the work. <laughs> Can't do that. Can't do that. Well, you lose touch very quickly, don't you, if you try and take that approach yep. uh, because you, you're just getting yourself too removed yeah. from the real world. And in organizations, when information flows up to the corner office, it's sanitized at every level. People make decisions about what to include, what to not include. And by the time it gets you, who knows what the story is. So you've got to be calibrating all around the organization at any point in time, which I love. Yeah, I have a funny story about that. Well, so two things. One, the data that we collected, we found that the more senior you become in an organization, the more disconnected you become. Totally. And when I say senior, you know, I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about seniority level. Like the higher up you mm. go up that corporate pyramid, so to speak, the more disconnected you start to become. It's, it's a scary thing. Uh, but the funny story about that is, um, and it just, it also speaks to, I think, the, the weight that a lot of leaders have. I was talking to the CEO of an organization once, and he was saying that they were, he was viewing, uh, they just opened brand new corporate offices, and he was doing a tour with some of the employees. And he was walking along the hallways, and he remarked on some of the art that there was there. And he said, oh, that's great art. You know, I really like it. And all you see all the employees are like taking notes and, um, and they say, okay, great. You know, they finish the tour and then he goes and he sees another corporate office months later and he says, wait a minute, it's the exact same art. Um, they took the exact same art and put it everywhere. And the CEO got confused. He's like, why did you guys do this? And his employees were like, oh, because you said that you liked it. You said you wanted it everywhere. And he said, no, I didn't. <laughs> I was just commenting on the fact that I thought the art in this particular building in this office was great. I didn't say put it everywhere across all the different campuses that we have. And that just goes to show the impact that you as a leader have and sometimes how, how the message can get trickled down in a very interesting way and, and get translated even though you didn't intend for it to get translated in a certain way. I, I could talk about this one all day, Jacob. You are so spot on with that. One of my trusted advisors once said to me, 
you have to remember that your mouth is a loaded weapon. Yeah. People are going to take what you say and they get, they're going to act on it. And then you get all this other stuff happening through the organization where people use it as a weapon. They actually weaponize your comments by saying things like, oh, well, Martin wants this. And he said that and he wants this. Well, hang on. No, I didn't. But, yeah. you know, a couple of words come out of your mouth. It's a bit of a thought bubble. And all of a sudden there's teams and resources being thrown at stuff. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, especially in today's world, you know, and people talk a lot about this today, you know, this cancel culture mentality and like you mm. have to be so careful with what you say. And I think even recently, uh, the most recent example I saw, there was, a, I think, an executive at Google. Uh, he was a VP at Google. And this was a recent, he put up a LinkedIn post. And he wrote this LinkedIn article about um, how he used to he used to be racist. He, he used to hate Jews because that is how he grew up. Um, he was raised in that kind of a community. He was raised in that kind of a culture when he was younger. You know, I mean, he's now like 50, 60 years old. And he wrote this whole article about how um, it was wrong and how, you know, he realized through throughout his life why why this was such a bad thing. And, you know, he basically wrote this huge essay, basically um, explaining why he was wrong and why he was at fault. And the comments that this person got, I mean, first of all, he got fired from the company. Uh, Google let him go. Oh. He got fired from the company. Um, but it was interesting because there was a mix of comments that this executive got. And some people were just like tearing into him. How could you, you know, you're, you're scum of the earth. And other people were saying, it's very brave of you to come forward and to admit that the beliefs that you once had, why they were wrong, what you learned from it and how you moved forward. And his article is talking about now love and unification. And um, I thought in general, it had an overall positive tone towards it, but people just tore into mm. this person. And it's just, it's very hard, right? Because as a leader, you're kind of like damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I honestly am not entirely sure what the right answer is, but I think the lesson is, as you said, your mouth is a loaded weapon and you have to be so careful with what you say, why you say it, the intention, um, because it's just, you know, we're living in, in, in a very, very interesting time now. Yes, we are. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not sure that I've quite decided yet whether it's the right thing for CEOs to be... Uh, emphatic about social issues that are going on. Now, there are some things that are a no-brainer that a CEO needs to take a stand on uh, when it is clearly uh, for the moral good of everyone around us. For example, climate change, very important that CEOs take yep. a stand on that. That's important. Uh, but even when we think about things like gay marriage, now this is sort of interesting because uh, I know that in the US, different states have different views on this and different laws on it. In Australia, we passed uh, what we call a plebiscite, a referendum a number of years ago, to legalise marriage between two same-sex partners. And interestingly, when I thought about that from my role as a CEO, do I believe in it personally? Yes, I do, right? But some of the places where this went to the vote in Australia were places where our power stations were running and our employees were adamantly against it to the tune of 70 to 80% mm. against. So if I come out and say, I believe this is a socially good thing, I believe that we're progressively liberal and everyone needs to be accepted for who they are, then all of a sudden I've got you know, a quarter of my workforce that thinks I'm scum of the earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's really tricky. Like you said, very hard to know where to go with it. Yeah, and I wish I knew what the best answer was. I mean, I, I think you know, it's very tempting, of course, to say uh, for somebody like me who's not running a multi-billion dollar company, oh yeah, you, know, you should always take the moral high ground, you should always do this and that. Um, 
and I think it's easy for a lot of people to do that. I mean, it's easy to leave a comment on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on social media to just say, oh yeah, of course you should, you know, you should just voice your opinions and concerns. But there are a lot of other realities that business leaders need to take into consideration, like having a third of your workforce walk out on you or like somebody potentially destroying power plants and cutting off energy or whatever to, you know, a portion of us, like you just don't know. And I think uh, probably what makes the most sense is a lot of leaders need to take it on a case-by-case basis Mm, Uh, because I do agree with you that it is important to have a stance on a lot of issues, but I think all the issues that you take a stance on, you need to have some sort of context around it. And I mean, honestly, I, I do not know what the best answer is. And I've talked to a lot of CEOs who struggle with this too, and they too don't know what the best answer is. I mean, what are you supposed to do? You see some CEOs like Mark Benioff from Salesforce um, and I don't remember the exact state, but there was a state in um, in the United States which basically said that um, businesses in that state had the right to refuse service, um, I think, to gay, lesbian, transgender, you know, to whoever they wanted. Yeah. And they, they passed a law on that. And Mark Benioff was like, what are you, out of your mind? Like, this is the most morally uh, apprehensive thing that I could think of. And he said, fine, you want to pass that kind of a law? We're not going to host any conferences or any events in your state ever. Any employee who wants to leave that state, we will provide you a relocation package. Get the hell out of there. We we don't want you in a place like that. Um, So you see some CEOs like Mark who come out strong and hard against certain issues, but you don't see that very often. Mm. And again, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. Um, but I do think that it's it's a big challenge for a lot of business leaders out there. And I empathize with them because I honestly don't know what I would do. Yeah. It's, uh, as you said, context and case by case, I think is the way to go, Jacob. Yeah. Uh, look, I should probably wrap this up, mate. We, do you know that we are actually a short, sharp 15 to 20 minute podcast, but I've been loving this conversation so much. Uh, you've just got so much value for our listeners. They're absolutely going to love it, mate. So um, we're, we're going to run this one a bit longer. I had I didn't even know it was 15, 20 minutes. I have. Oh, yeah, we just do short, sharp impact, and we rarely do an interview. So, uh, so this is a real treat for us, right? Normally, it's, normally it's just me monologuing about the stuff that I think is important for leaders. So, uh, so this is great for us. Cool. But I do want to finish with a quote from your book from Mandy Ginsburg, uh, the CEO of Match Group. And I really like this because if I was going to try and put in a nutshell what this leadership cape is all about, this is getting pretty close to it. So she says, for me, it's about finding the people who are great and building a real working relationship with them so you know how to keep them motivated and inspired. And they, in turn, continue to deliver phenomenal results for you. Yeah. I just think that's such a great quote. But given that you've got so many great quotes from so many CEOs that you've spoken to in the book, what would you add to that or modify it with to give it the roundedness that is currently your view of the world? Well, I mean, her quote was great. I, I loved her quote. It speaks volumes. Um, I think there's one other quote that... Uh, and I don't know the entire quote, but it's more of a story. And it's the story from um, uh, a CEO of a home builder, Taylor Morrison, and the CEO is Cheryl Palmer. And one of the things that I asked all these CEOs when I interviewed them is I said, what is the most impactful moment uh, that most shaped who you are as a leader and as a person? And for Cheryl Palmer, she, uh, Cheryl Palmer, she shared this story with me about how she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And she was, oh yes, yeah. She was getting ready to go into surgery, and she didn't know if she was going to come out of it or not. And she, what she had to do is she had to write two letters to her team. One letter she wanted her team to get if the surgery would go well, and she'd be returning back in a few weeks. And the second letter she wrote is if things didn't go well, 
and you know we can all interpret what that means. And she said that this experience of being diagnosed with a brain tumor, of having to go through that surgery, really taught her that as a leader, you need to make everything that you do intentional. Because a lot of leaders go around and they fight fires. They don't treat every interaction and every relationship they have as intentional, as purposeful. They just treat it as something that's there. But when you are faced with something like a brain tumor, um, when you are faced with mortality, when you are faced with something that is so deep and profoundly impactful, you start to really appreciate every relationship and interaction that you have. And she said that that most changed who she is as a leader and as a person. And after that moment, she had purpose and intention and focus in everything that she did. And it's funny because up until like literally the night when she was having brain surgery, she was negotiating something to make sure that her people, there, there was a, a sell of the business. Uh, part of the business was going to be sold off. Oh, right. And she was yeah. literally the, the day before, the night before her surgery, she was negotiating something to make sure that her people would be taken care of um, after that sale happened. So literally up until her surgery, she's focusing and taking care of her people. And it shows. I mean, she's one of the top-ranked CEOs. The company is one of the best places to work. People love her. They love the organization because she is always there for them. And I love that quote and I love that story. And probably the last thing that I'll um, say is I, I don't think there's ever been a harder time to be a leader. Um, you know, you, you look back at history and you look at a lot of the celebrity CEOs that used to be out there, people like Jack Welsh. Um, I think for a lot of them, it was much easier. But you look at the world that we're living in with the changes, with the, um, you know, so much politics going on, so much polarization that's out there. Uh, we see a lot of conversations on cancel culture, so much scrutiny. Like, I honestly, if I was a leader of a big company, I do not know what I would do in a lot of these situations and cir uh, circumstances. And so I think that we, just in general, need to understand that it is hard. I mean, it's hard to be a person in general now. <laughs> yes, but it imagine, is. But imagine running a team where you have so much responsibility. So many people are looking up to you. You were responsible for so much money. We got to give people a little bit of a break sometimes and admit and understand that not everybody's going to make the right choice all the time. We're going to make mistakes. And if we truly believe in creating a learning culture, a learning environment, that's going to involve mistakes and failure. But if we keep tearing everybody down and ripping them to shreds for every mistake that they make, nobody's going to come forward with anything. Um, we're going to focus on creating a culture that embraces the status quo, not on one that innovates and solves problems and creates a place where we all want to show up. So I think that's just an important thing for people to remember that it's hard for everybody, especially leaders. Uh, and that is a great place to finish the interview. Um, Jacob, thank you so much for that. Where can uh, No Bullshit Leadership listeners find out more about you, apart from going out and buying your book, The Future Leader, which is a cracking read? Oh, yeah. Hey, you know what? I would love for people to grab the book. Um, if people, for some whatever reason, don't want to get the book and they just want to get a download of the PDF of the skills and mindsets, we created a URL called The Leadership Digest. Um, that'll just give you a breakdown of the skills and mindsets. Uh, my website is thefutureorganization.com and my email is jacob at thefutureorganization.com. If anybody wants to send me a note, uh, and I actually, I'd, I'd love to hear from people. If you were a leader of a company and you were going through this kind of a challenge, right, between this moral stance and, and the cancel culture stuff that's out there, I love any stories, any feedback. Uh, please feel free to share that with me because, uh, you know, I love learning from everyone. Thanks so much for that. And uh, Jacob Morgan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And thank you for your generous uh, sharing of your time and wisdom 
with the No Bullshit Leadership audience, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 165. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode with your leadership network because you know it's going to help them. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode. Don't mollycoddle your people. They're paid to do a job. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs>